Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Michael Snyder. He's the chair of the Department of Genetics from 2009 to present. He's a director of the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. Also from 2009, this is at Stanford. We're going to talk about his work in Snyder Lab, and we're going to look at what's called glucotypes. Uh, I guess how different people um, manifest and show their blood sugar and how they deal with it you know, before or after they eat, etc. It promises to be a very interesting call. So, Michael, welcome and thank you for coming. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, tell me a bit about your background first, how you got into looking at you know, glucotypes and blood sugar and things like that. Sure. So, well, I'm a professor at Stanford. I've been an academic for a long time. I think we first got interested in the space when we realized that the healthcare system is broken. First of all, it's really sick care, not health care. We tend to treat people when they're ill rather than keep them healthy. And second, just the methods we use, I think, are very substandard. So we think many aspects of this can be changed. And so my background is I'm trained as a molecular biologist. And we came in at a time, I started science at a time when people used to study genes one at a time and proteins one at a time. And our shtick, if you will, was to try and study them all at once, get a systems view of what's going on. We first did this for biological problems, and now we're trying to do this for health. That is to say, rather than study one aspect of health at a time, we're trying to get a much more detailed global view. And that's really what we've been working on for about the last 15 years. In particular, are you working with uh, like Lifestyle Libres and Dexcoms and continuous glucose monitors? Or you know, where does the glucotype work come in? Maybe I'll back up a little bit more. Again, as part of this transforming healthcare, what we do is we do very, very deep data dives on people. That is to say, we'll sequence their DNA to make predictions about you know, health risks, including diabetes and such. We also do deep profiles out of people's blood, meaning we'll make as many molecular measurements using something called mass spectrometry, a method that can follow thousands of molecules. And then we got interested in the wearable space, and that would mean smartwatches and, and glucose monitors, roughly about 10 years ago. And we realized these are powerful devices for following people continuously. And so from smartwatches, we show we can actually detect when people are getting ill before they have symptoms even. So we can tell you 80% of the time whether you have, you're coming down with in advance. Yeah, it's pretty cold. I mean, you, know, you can't just briefly about that, what are... What was that proprietary? What are some of the factors that showed you someone was getting sick? Yeah, it turns out resting heart rate is very, very powerful. And there are other measurements too, like blood oxygen. So we got involved in this because I actually discovered my Lyme disease of all things from a simple smartwatch and something called a pulse ox that measures blood oxygen. And what happened was I noticed that my blood oxygen went down and my heart rate went up. I later saw my skin temperature as well. And then two weeks earlier, I'd been in rural Massachusetts where helping my brother put a fence is where most ticks are, are Lyme infest. So basically, I thought it might be Lyme because something was off. I did get a fever off and on and right after that, and I 
But I first detected something was off from my simple smartwatch, and it later turned out to be proved to be Lyme. But my smartwatch alerted me to this, and so we went on to show then that that was quite powerful for detecting respiratory viral infect in general. We published this in 2017, and then along came COVID, as you know, in 2020 is when it hit the U.S. And we pretty quickly could show that we could detect COVID with a smartwatch first retrospectively, and now we actually have a real-time detection method for that, meaning we follow you if you have a simple smartwatch, sign up for our study at stanford.innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables, and you can actually sign up for our study, and we you basically see whether you have a red alert, if you will, or a green. Green day means everything's fine. Red alert means something shift. And it's mostly built around resting heart rate. Resting heart rate is a very, very sensitive measure of health. It's actually better than temp. So anyway, that that actually works pretty well. Works about the same number, 80% of time. Can even find asymptomatic case. It's not specific for COVID. I should have other illnesses can trigger this. Actually workplace stress can. It's more of a dresser detectionism. I know with more data, the one reason we want people to sign up at our study is we should be able to tell regular respiratory viral illnesses from mental health and stress with the right data. So that's what we're on now. Why is resting heart rate so predictive of illness, for instance? Why do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. We don't know. It is known that when people first get ill, you do raise your temperature. There are certain, they're called cytokines, certain immune markers that will trigger your, activate your immune system. And some of them are known to elevate your temperature. And one idea is that it is a defense response, either helping your immune system or slowing down viral infection. It's not 100% clear exactly why your temperature goes up when you get ill. And same with, and, and to get your temperature up, you certainly need your resting heart rate. And your resting heart rate just turns out to be much, much more sensitive measure than temperature. We can tell somebody's getting ill with as little as two beats per minute increase. And that's very, very easy to pick up with Martwatch. So we think this is very powerful. And actually, if you want to take this further, it turns out, you know, measuring whether you're getting ill with temperature, that's a 300-year-old concept. Resting heart rate's much, much better and I should point out that, you know, half the people who get COVID don't even get a fever, so their temperature doesn't even go up. So we think resting heart rate could be a much, much more sensitive. And, and there's other measurements you can use, too, things like heart rate variability. The problem, though, with resting heart rate is you need to know what yours is under normal condition. Yep. So temperature, supposedly, doesn't matter. We know the supposed normal you know, range of human temperature. So Believe it or not, we all have different baseline temperatures. That's a misnomer to think we're all the same, 90.6. It, well, it turns out that's really interesting. The the It turns out that the average temperature is 97.5 or 97.7, depending what study you believe. It's not 90.6. And so, and more importantly, as you point out, there's a range. So it turns out 25th quartile, about 25% of people, it's 94.6. And for the, the upper end, the 75th quartile, it's 99.1. So people have very wide range of their baseline temperature. So actually, it's important to know what your baseline is so that if you do see this shift, you can really tell what's going on. We think it's very, very powerful. So do you have a simple protocol or a set of biomarkers that people should test, let's say, every six months to have a baseline? Let's say they do their like gut microbiome and they look at their, you know, their basal temperature and they look at their heart rate, you know, variability, and they look at their resting heart rate, XYZ, 
then if you know if anything starts changing, at least they know their baseline and they can know what's going on. Yeah, great question. I think the answer is that, yeah, you want to have a smartwatch so you can follow this 24-7 or a ring. There are rings that can do this too, the Aura Ring, for example. The reason they're so powerful is because they do follow you 24-7. It's very easy to get a baseline. And we build our baseline around people's what's called circadian pattern. You know, what's going on? Because it can vary during time of day. And But we know what your baseline is at different times of day, and then it's very easy to detect a shift from that baseline. So I think the smart watches will be very, very powerful health monitors of the future. Right now, they're mostly used for research, but at some point they will become, you know, I believe health monitors of the future. And so I think right now you can do that. You can join our study, for example. We can tell you when you're shifting from your base. Now, there will be other things that can trigger the shift. A good example is if you binge drinking, you will actually elevate your heart rate from, you know, 24 hours or more. And so that will trigger, you know, in our case, these alerts, these red alerts. Same with, you know, stressors of various sorts. But we still think that's powerful to know when you're stressed, either mentally or physically. And so actually, we think tracking this with smartwatch can be very, very powerful. And, and the methods we set up, they're actually applicable to all kinds of devices. Apple, Fitbit, I have my own company, I'm a little conflicted. Sensomics, although they're not direct to consumer. But anyway, we think that, you know, wearables are going to be super powerful for tracking health in the future. And then I do think other kinds of measurement. Another thing we've set up recently is something called microsampling, where you do little pricks of blood. I know what this is going to sound like. You do little pricks of blood, mail it in, and we can measure 2,200 molecules. And so there, we actually formed a company around this called YOLO, I-O-L-L-O, they actually are commercializing as a version that basically where you do little pricks of blood on, on your shoulder, it doesn't hurt, you mail it in, we will measure over 500 metabolites. That turn out to be very powerful wellness markers, things around kidney, liver, even mental health uh, markers will show up in this. And there we're recommending every three months or so people should should measure themselves. And so we think that could, you know, a, a powerful regime in the future that is to say you'll measure yourself. We don't know how often you should really be measuring yourself biochemically. It's a good question. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Starting to do experiments where let's say someone, will, a cohort will change their diet, look at how the, all the markers change, or a we person uh, does something that is stressful and looks at how the markers change. You're like, right now it sounds like you can see things change, but how predictive are your models and what, what can they see in the future? Yeah, great question. So, so what we're doing in the lab is we have a very this very deep research study where we're literally measuring people every three months while they're healthy and, and measuring, you know, thousands of molecules. We also sequence their DNA to see, make predictions about their genetic risk, and we have wearables on these folks. So it's a cohort of a, a little over a hundred people that we've been tracking for over ten years now. We can 
And and it turns out it's quite powerful. We do detect when people shift from their baseline. And in fact, just in the first three and a half years, half the people learned something pretty important about their health pre-symptomatically, meaning before they had symptoms. We could actually see something was shifted off. And sometimes it was wearable. Sometimes it was a biochemical measurement. Sometimes we predicted it from the genome of all things. And we call it cases like early lymphoma, caught two cases of pre-cancers that can convert to aggressive cancers, two people with serious heart issues. So it turns out as 4,909 people, we had a major health discovery on. So we really found something. How did you know what you found? Like the lymphoma people, let's say. You know, I don't know what you can give an example of, you know, obviously without names, but how did you know if you found X that it meant Y? Yeah, great question. So I'll give you the case for the lymphoma. We were doing, as part of this, they were, we were doing limited amount of imaging with ultrasound. And we saw this person had both an enlarged, enlarged spleen, but also had several biochemical markers that were off blood mark. And so we knew something wasn't right. And so they then did follow up. And sure enough, they had, they, they did more standard clinical tasks. So what we're doing, again, is a research study, but it does uncover things that are off. And again, this is all pre-symptomatically. This person didn't know they had lymphoma, but we discovered they had a large spleen. And one way to look at this is we're making so many measurements on people. It's like, if you think of your health as a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, we're trying to measure five or 600 pieces. Today in the healthcare system, they measure five or six. We're just measuring people so much more deeply that we'll see when things are off again before symptoms appear and then they can get treated. This person's been totally under control ever since we discovered this because we caught it early. Now we have spun off. I'm a believer academics are great. Proof of principle. We're good at discovery, but we're not so good at scaling. So we formed a company around this does a medical version, not quite as deep as the research version, but much more clinically actionable information. And on top of that, they do whole body MRI. And MRI is great for catching cancer. If you act any, ask anyone in today's world, should you do whole body MRI? 100% of physicians will say, absolutely not. And the reason is they worry that you will find nodules. And I guarantee you'll find nodules. We all have them. Men have nodules in their prostate, women in their ovary, 100%. If you ask Mike Snyder, should you do whole body MRI? I'll say with 100% confidence, you absolutely should. The issue isn't do you have nodules. The issue is do you have any growing nodules. And we can pick that up. It's it's the longitudinal measurements. You can see shifts from baseline. And that's how we made some a lot of the discoveries I mentioned. And QBio, just in the first 100 plus people, they caught someone with ovarian cancer, another person with cardiovascular disease, and even caught someone with early pancreatic cancer, which is almost never discovered early. Same with ovarian cancer. That's rare. And they caught it early because they were doing these deep measurements on people, and they were doing it longitudinally. They could see when something shifted from baseline. And we think that's the power of, of health tracking for the future, that you should be profiling people while they're healthy, know what their baseline is so you can detect these shifts and then act early. What do the, the shifts look like numerically, graphically, et cetera? Do they have a, a profile that where you thought it should look like? Did anyone even have an idea that, oh, it, it'll slowly rise up or, or it'll was it a, a spike in a certain factor and then it went down and the spike and it went down? Like, what do these profiles look like, for example? Yeah, great question. Often there are spikes, believe it or not. Things are tracking along pretty normally, like in this cohort we're following. And then suddenly their value may double. Now, they may still be in the normal range. We had someone who had a liver enzyme that was tracking. He was always at the low end, uh, but still in the normal range. And suddenly his 
liver enzyme double, okay? But he was still in the normal range, so nobody said anything to him. But he, he came to me and said, Mike, what do you think this means? Part of our study, I said, well, I don't know, but why don't you go get another measurement? Don't wait, you know, in today's healthcare system, most people get measured once a year, once every two years. So we'll just go get measured again. And he did, and he went out of range. So it was clear we it was that shift from baseline. Even though he's still in the normal range, it said something was off. And he actually, in his case, he was able to modify his diet and it went to normal. That doesn't always happen, <laughs> but it did happen in his case. He shifted to a vegan diet. His liver enzyme stabilized, went actually back to his normal range. Everything's been fine ever since. So in many cases like that, and same with the uh, some of the cancers we saw, we saw people, there things in large. In the case of my COVID, you'll see people, they're tracking along normally and just a few beats per minute, we'll, we'll, we can detect that and detect that shift. So they can be fairly subtle. In some cases, it does look a little more gradual. We, we did see someone with, they're called precancers. They had a certain, they had their platelets slowly went up and, and that was flagged. And then we later discovered they had a precancer mutation in, in their blood cells. So and they're now being treated to try and keep that under control. So these are the kinds of things that you can discover by tracking people. Many, as they say, are sudden, but some some can be slow, and we just see these gradual shifts. But because we're measuring people frequently, we can catch. That's great. Let, let's move to glucotypes. So is this how people respond, again, to the eating foods with various sugars, sugar levels on them, or what is a glucose? Yeah, so to put this in context, and I think this is very relevant for the listeners, 9% of people in the U.S. are diabetic, and 33% are pre-diabetic, and most of those pre-diabetics don't know it, 90% don't know not only that, of all these pre-diabetic, 70% will become diabetic within five years. So there is a diabetes and pre-diabetes endemic going on that's worse than COVID. And it has to do with our lifestyle and the fact we, we don't eat so well. Now, it turns out that everybody, what we did that was kind of early on, that there were these there are continuous glucose monitors. These are devices you actually put on your shoulder, if you will, and they measure your glucose every five minutes. And they're used a lot for type 1 and insulin-dependent type 2 diabetic. They, they, with this, they can better control their glucose level. What we discovered is we put these devices, again, these continuous glucose monitors, on normal people and pre-diabetics. And what we discovered is they spiked just as bad as diabetics. Some of them did. Some had normal good glucose control. Many were actually moderate spikers, meaning their glucose would go up, especially after meals. But some were just as bad as diabetics and didn't know it. So, so these devices turn out to be very, very powerful for detecting glucose dysregulation. And then from that information, we classified people into glucotypes, glucose, if you will, levels and spiking patterns. And so we have some people who are normal and low glucotype. Some people are moderate spikers. We call that moderate glucotype. And some that are severe. That's where, of course, a lot of the diabetics are. They're severe spiker. You know, a while back, we had like the Dexcom, I don't know, G6, whatever it was. My wife would eat, you know, let's say I have a soda and her hers would spike really high, like 250 and then crash you know, like 30, 40 minutes later, 50, 60. When I would have stuff like that, it would go high, you know, like maybe 170, 180, and it would then come down slower. So we saw like a dramatic difference based on, you know, us eating the same thing or drinking the same thing. We would go to restaurants and one restaurant, we'd have like, let's say chicken and rice, and it would go up to like 130, another one, the same meal. I guess they made it with different oils or whatever. It went up to like 180. So we noticed that. If we went for a walk immediately after eating a meal where our sugars were high, 
you know, we could get the 20, 30 points to come down you know, after, let's say, 20 minutes of walking. We saw things like that, but not much explanation of them. Yeah, no, you're hitting the nail on the head, and that's where I was going to go next. It turns out that, so first of all, we all, all have different forms of glucose dysregulation, much like we think diabetes is probably 15 or 20 different subtypes. It turns out we all respond differently to foods, and that's one of the things we discovered earlier, as did another group in Israel, that some people will spike, if you will, to potatoes, others to pasta, some to white bread, some to brown bread, some to bananas. There's a few foods everybody spikes to, usually sweets like cookies and cake. Believe it or not, white rice spikes most people. One thing we discovered is cornflakes and milk spikes 80% of the people. I think that stuff's like poison, so I would recommend watching out for it. So, and what you say is true, the magnitude of the spike then is very, very different amongst different people and the types of food. And it turns out that the Israeli group has shown that basically 21% of this, if you will, is due to your microbiome. So these microbes in your gut and how you digest your food, they have different enzymes in them and they probably are mediating the response differently. But it's only part of it. We don't know fully why different people spike to different foods. It probably also involves your immune system as well. Something we're working very, very hard on. So we're trying to understand right now in our research what foods spike people differently and why is that? Why is it more the microbiome in part, but we want to understand it, what else is going on? And then also what foods, what we're discovering is that certain foods will mitigate those spikes. Something you alluded to earlier. For some people, we think it's protein. For other people, we think it's fat. Well, will mitigate their spike. And so we're trying to understand the rules of all this. Clearly, food is number one factor, meaning uh, if you eat sugary foods, it's going to spike most people. But it's very, very interesting. For fruits, you actually, a lot of people like berries and grapes, they will get a spike after they eat it. But it's a very transient spike. It'll go up high and then come down quickly. Other things for like potatoes, for a lot of people, will send it up, but then it'll stay up for a while. Probably depends how quickly you can break down that. Again, it's very, very different for the person. It's very, very different for the food. So one of the things we've done that relates to what you were saying is that here we discovered all this and figured out some rules, and then we formed a company around that called January AI that we think is very, very powerful. They, they built a whole behavior modification program. They have a 32 million food database, and they can use AI to help better manage people's food, artificial intelligence. That is, they'll, you wear a continuous glucose monitor, you see and you log your foods, and you see what foods spike you and which ones don't. And then because of this food database, they can say, well, if this food spikes you, if food A spikes you and food B does not, well, you should eat food B and these other types are, that are like food B based on this database that will mitigate, you know, that therefore won't spike you. I've had a panel where you look at however many thousand foods or hundreds of foods and you see which ones are recommended for you or not. So if you did that and, and again, avoided foods that would cause an allergic response to that person, it would probably be even better. It would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, what you say is true. Certain foods are just going to spike everybody. You watch out for those. But because it is personal, you can actually tune it and make it a lot better. And the other thing you raised was a very important point. It turns out that a brisk walk after eating will very much mitigate those spikes. You know, our lab and, and actually some JRAI does the same thing. We will teach you that. We'll say, you know, first thing in the morning, eat your favorite food which is always sugary for most people. And so they'll spike. And then the next morning we say, eat your favorite food, do a brisk 15 or 20 minute walk. And sure enough, you'll see that spike get suppressed. You can even suppress a little bit by walking before you eat the food. The other thing that 
we've discovered both in the lab and the company is that you shouldn't eat for three hours before bed. I don't know if you know this or not. It's sort of known, but that one- I heard this, but why? It turns out your glucose will stay high the next day, generally. That's one of the things we found in the lab and in the company as well, that your glucose levels the next day are a lot higher if you eat right before you go to bed. So it really is recommended. And the other thing we found in the lab is do, do a walk in the evening after dinner, and that very much lowers your glucose for the next day. So there's a lot of these behavioral things that people aren't aware of that could be very, very powerful for controlling your glucose spikes. And by the way, you you can see all this with these continuous glucose monitors. I'll tell you just one thing, again, the company has shown is that just wearing a glucose monitor, you may have found the same thing yourself, Richard. If you just wear a glucose monitor and do food logging 10 days, everybody improves what's called their time and range. They tend to eat things and do things that will make them spike less. Can I give you a personal example? That's a lot of... Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when I first was putting these things on, I've been wearing them for 10 years now. I still learn stuff uh, I didn't know before. But I remember early on, you know, I put these on, and because I'm diabetic, I'm, uh, I'm a weird type 2 diabetic, I spiked a lot of things. Well, one thing I, I ate was a pulled pork sandwich. Ate this thing, and suddenly my glucose went up to 350. I couldn't believe it. I said this to somebody, uh, and he said, Mike, everybody knows pulled pork has sugar in it. Well, I didn't know, but <laughs> a lot of these things are obvious in hindsight, but you don't realize it until you actually see it. So they're very, very powerful devices. You mentioned an immune response. What does that look like when someone has one? Is that where the heart rate of variability goes down or the heart, resting heart rate goes up or like what happens? Well, the standard assay for immune response would be you would see something called C-reactive protein or these immune markers called cytokines go up. So we have seen that with certain, like people who are diabetic tend to have higher inflammation, will have elevated levels of these cytokines and CRP. That's pretty common. So you can actually measure this. And those you go to a physician, I would, you actually can get a, let me call it a hemoglobin A1C tattoo, by the way, for glucose levels. You can get that at Walmart. I think people should get measured for this stuff a lot more frequently. And anyway, it does turn out, we think that you know, when your glucose levels are running high, it does stimulate a lot of your inflammation mark. One thing we discovered as well is that with this microsampling that I mentioned where you can do pricks of blood and you mail it in, we'll measure, you know, thousands of molecules. We actually discovered that we had 32 people drink an Ensure shake, you know, this thing you can get in a CVS. And it turns out that everybody reacted to that shake differently. Some people, their carbs went up, others it went down. Some people's are amino acid. What the interesting result was that for some people, the shake actually suppressed inflammation markers, the cytokines, things I talked about. But for other people, it actually stimulated them, meaning they got inflammation when they drank that shake. Same shake caused different responses in your immune response. And we think this is a big deal because 10% of people have inflammatory bowel syndrome. A lot of people get very irritated after certain things they eat, and they often don't know what's causing it. I think we're in a position to figure this out now, what foods are causing inflammation for what people. And so I really transformed the way we're eating, not just with glucose, but with inflammatory markers. Like I tell you, I did a test for food allergies, but I bet you that these devices, properly tuned and understood, could reveal that without you having to take such a test. Like you have, to, have you done like cereal eating? Not eating cereal, but cereal eating, meaning like uh, I eat one thing and I look at all my biomarkers before and after. Maybe one more thing, and I do the same. Like, have you tried to um, 
get this down on a very fine micro level for an individual just to see their responses to different foods and, and to see, oh, if I eat this, my heart rate goes up. That's a signal meaning that it's bad for me, let's say. Or if I eat that, my cytokines go up, which means it's bad for me. Like, what are the markers you're seeing in common that can tell you that certain foods are bad for someone or not? Yeah, great question. Well, the markers you would use for inflammation would be the cytokine assays and the C-reactive proteins here. Those are standard inflammation markers. So, and, and we do follow that. So we've done some of those studies. There's a lot of studies to do, so there's still a lot of work ahead. But we've done a lot with glucose, I mentioned already, in these continuous glucose monitors. We've done this study with the Centure Shake and doing very deep profiles where we look at their metabolites and their protein standard immune markers and things like that. And so that's where we do see a lot of variability. We've been doing a lot of fiber studies, believe it or not. Fiber, you may or may not know, Americans don't eat enough fiber. Actually, most of the world doesn't eat as much. So meaning... The women are recommended to have 25 grams a day, men 35. And it turns out the average American eats about 12 grams a day, so half or less even in many cases. So we don't eat enough fiber, and that's really important for feeding your microbiome. It's good for your glucose control, et cetera. So we've been running some studies where we're actually having different you know, people eat different fi- well. People are eating different fibers, and we, we test different fibers on different folks, then do these deep profiles that I just mentioned to see what happens to their metabolism and to their inflammation markers and such. And same thing, I mean, there's some fibers, one called Arabidus island, it's found in Metamucil and things that lowers everybody's or most people's cholesterol. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And we also look at another common one called inulin that found in chicory, places like that. So so we, we've been testing common fibers, and, and we are finding some of them have will, will have a general effect. None are perfect, though. But many of them have very specific effects, meaning some people will have a great response to one fiber, but not another. And so we're trying to work out the rules there, just like you say, where we have people try these different foods and see how they react. One of the things we discovered is that this one fiber I mentioned, inulin, high doses will cause inflammation in a small set of people. So a small set of people that will react badly if they eat too much of this one one particular fiber. Now, it's a pretty high dose that triggers it. So to your point, we're trying to understand how different foods, basically foods that we should be eating more, how people react to them. And, and then the ultimate goal is to really optimize what people eat and such. And I really do believe the sage that, you know, food is medicine. We, If you think about it, something we do a lot of, uh, it's really, really critical. It feeds our gut microbiome where we have you know, millions of bacteria that are important for health. It affects our metabolism, it affects our neurological, our metabolic state. And we honestly don't know the rules of how this whole thing works. And so that's an area where we're keenly interested in. What do you think is going to be the near-term future, let's say the next three years? Are there specific things that you're you're trying to, I guess, get all the factors for, let's say for, you know, diabetic response or glucose response, or, you know, you have tons of different focuses, like what are they right now? We do a lot of different focuses. So one of the most obvious is, is the glucose control. I really want to get that. The, this, As I say, this endemic is terrible. And it's only going to get worse. It literally costs the, the U.S. something $280 billion a year, diabetes-related complications. So we really need to get this under control. And these monitors, I think, are going to be super, super powerful for this. And, and we think lifestyle interventions will be powerful. We just had my company, January I just had a paper out showing that a very simple platform using 
this behavior modification and continuous glucose monitors actually help people lose weight, improve their glucose timing range, improve their glucotype, if you will. And the net result is, you know, these people are presumably living better, healthier lives. And we think that this will be the future. In, in Europe, these devices, continuous glucose monitors, they're over the counter, meaning you can walk into a store and buy right off. Here, you still need a, a physician. I think they will become over the counter at some point. But I think everybody's going to be wearing these, you know, at least once a year, if not more frequently, to better understand how foods are affecting their glucose and their health. And so I do think this is going to be, this will move out very, very quickly. I think the wearables for disease detection, like the smartwatch, as I said, for detecting infectious disease, mental health, that's all going to roll out in the next few years, too. It already is, in fact. Most smartwatches have stress detectors. They won't call them infectious disease because that's a medical diagnosis. You can't really do that. But based on our work, a lot of people are showing that you can pick up stressors from a simple smartwatch. Smartwatches and glucose monitors are going to be super powerful, spread very, very quickly. I think they'll get incorporated into people's healthcare. I hope this idea of frequent monitoring with, you know, these micro samplings, these blood samplings, like I mentioned, or yellow move out quickly. I think in the longer term, it might take more than three years, but I, I hope within 10 years, everybody's getting deep data dyes, like what QBio does, where we get whole body MRIs. I think they'll be very, very fast together with deep biochemical measurements. So we can get a much, much clearer picture of people's health while they're healthy, not wait till they get ill and symptoms. Follow them while they're healthy. And that's what's powerful about everything we're doing. We're trying to track people while they're healthy so we can see these shifts from their baseline and catch disease early and, and then try and keep them healthy. And in many cases, it's a simple lifestyle effect. I can tell you another story. Everybody wears a smartwatch. You know, if they're tracking their steps, pretty much everybody, when they get the, you know, 9,600, figures out how to walk another 400 steps, basically boot it, boot them up to 10,000. And if you do that after dinner, you're doing yourself a favor. So I think these things are behavior modification device. Oh, definitely. I've seen that with myself, my wife, you know, with other people. What percentage of people just don't want to know? You know, that I feel like I'm like that sometimes, you know, I don't want to know. I don't want to have a cancer that I have to treat or this, that, or the other. You know, what do you do with you know, this significant? I, I think we got to break that mindset. I think that's an education thing. And, and what you say, it, it is really true. A lot of people, they're scared of what they might learn. But the consequences of not knowing are much, much worse. And the analogy I like to use is a car, your car dashboard. Your car dashboard, so your car has lots of sensors on it. And a subset of that information goes to your dashboard. The obvious ones are, you know, your gas and speedometer. But you have other sensors that are following your, you know, your engine health, if you will, and check engine light. And you wouldn't want to not have that, meaning you want to have that go off if something's wrong so that you can take your car in and get it fixed before, you know, basically totally trash. And I think the same thing's true for your health. I think you want to be tracking all these things so you can catch the stuff. And I can tell you, you know, the cases I mentioned in the lab, these 49 out of 109 people where we caught something early, they were, some of them were a big deal. Same with QBio. They found a whole bunch of really important stuff. Again, all pre-symptomatic. So in the end, people are really, really grateful you know, you, you worry a little bit, but I think you just got to know so that you can act early. And if you wait till it's late, it's very, very hard to fix people. As you probably know, metastatic cancer is almost impossible to cure. Uh, whereas, uh, but you catch it early, you can almost always cure it. I think that's the mindset we need to change. I think that's just an education problem. 
healthy, by the way, too, because keeping people healthy should say, you know, makes them more productive, uh, would keep them out of the hospital longer, which is really, really expensive. Some areas you can easily make strong economic justifications for for wanting to do this health tracking. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Excellent. Well, very good. Mike, it sounds like you're like a beehive of activity at the Snyder Lab. What's the best place for people to keep tabs on your work and to find out what you're doing? Where can they go? Yeah, well, one place is our study. If you go to the Snyder Lab, just look up Snyder Lab, you'll see research studies there. We offer a suite of them. You're, you're welcome to do that. You also can reach out to me directly. And as Michael, he is in Paul Snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, at stanford.edu. And I'm happy to respond. I'll see you the person who runs our study. And if you're able to put a little flag up on the podcast where the, I, I can send you the link where people could actually go as well so they could see this. But if it's radio, that's hard to do, I know. So. No, we can put it in the show notes because we'll post the podcast. So yeah, we can do that, no problem. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, and that way people can see the suite of studies. We offer some really exciting studies in the area of glucose monitoring, continuous glucose monitoring. Others in the air wearable. Some of them are easy. Some of them are a lot more work. Some of you have to be near our lab in the Bay Area. But in general, there are many studies that are that are remote can be run anywhere. And certainly you're welcome to see, you know, for some of the stuff we spun off commercially, you're certainly welcome to try those as well. And I can figure out how to send you that link if you a link to those if you like as well there. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Okay. Bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.